You're listening to So Organised Style podcast produced by me, Maria Thea Harris, Susan Goodwin of Measure Twice Cut Once Patterns, and Anne Wally, the Pattern Whisperer. From October to the 22nd of March next year, the Powerhouse Museum has a special collection by Jenny Key and Lynn Jackson called Step Into Paradise. This collection is the first in-depth survey that captures the dynamic energy of Linda and Jenny's creative partnership. It draws on more than four decades of one of the most influential pairings in the history of Australian fashion, examining the influences, inspirations and the compelling stories behind their work. Honoured as officers of the Order of Australia for their contributions to Australia's fashion industry, Jenny Key and Linda Jackson transformed the nation's fashion and cultural heritage with their pioneering style inspired by Australians' cultural and natural landscape melded with their global influences. This exhibition begins with their creative partnership in the 70s at the Flamingo Park Frock Salon at Sydney Strand Arcade and the sensational Flamingo fashion parades branching into their distinctive individual careers through to recent years including Jenny's costume designs for the Sydney Olympic Games and their collaborations with Australian designers Romance was born. Over 150 garments, textiles, photographs and artworks, many unseen from the museum's own extensive collection, are brought together with the designer's personal archives. Highlight pieces on display include artwork from the pair and archival behind-the-scenes photographs. Jenny's black opal Chanel suit from Karl Lagerfeld's first collection in 1983 and Linda Jackson's iconic Waratah dress. This episode is an audience member's view of the conversation, so the sound is what it is. Thanks for listening. I'm not sure, probably some of you have been to the exhibition, but we started going in backwards. So we got to go through all the different landscapes of our special places and the bush and the rainforest and going all the way through. And then the last few rooms that were done were the Flamingo Park rooms, the red room and the blue room. So for Jenny, when she walked into those rooms and they evoked so beautifully, the tears and the emotion of it was spectacular. I mean, you've, the team really have captured the beginnings and the beauty of that beautiful space. It is divine. So we're, we're all going emotional. <laughs> it's Mark <my> too. <laughs> the shop opened on the 27th of August, 1973 at 11 o'clock, reggae time. I said that a few times. Peter Tully was the first person to walk through the door. And to go into those, that, that blue room was the very first room. To go into that room now, I honestly, it is just, it, I get chills. You know, I was swaying to the palm trees back then and it's 50 years later nearly and I'm swaying even more. It's just the most extraordinary thing to be able to recreate the magic that we gave to someone. It's, we brought it all back home. I 
being in London, look, I just saw a performance last night. My God. It is a movie. I will digress, but that is a movie. That is one of the great movies, Mick Jagger, James Fox, Anita Palbert, an incredible movie. So it brought back to me what London was, how hot it was in 1968. They just recreated this incredible scene and so authentically amazing. So I was filled with that movie um, and just thinking about getting lost here. <laughs> Coming home to Australia and knowing what I'd lived through in London had to I had to create something that was like nothing else. And that's how it was formed. It was formed in the back room of Murka Moira's um, sort of little, uh, well, back room of Murka Moira because we came back to have an exhibition with George Moira. Michael was a um, beautiful artist. And uh, I had to think now, I'm living with an artist. I'm the one who's got to earn the money. What am I going to do? What, you know, because we wanted to stay in Australia. And that is how the, the, the shop was devised, you know, the painting, Wingo Park, how exciting, how romantic, how beautiful. So the painting became the icon of the shop. And which is in the exhibition there. The original painting is there. Which is amazing. But but it's just um, to to have to have thought of a painting to be you know we were doing it was going to be a clothes shop or a song seller but to have the, the painting as the uh, it set the tone for art and fashion I guess that's what I'm trying to say and yes goodness <laughs> <laughs> you want to say something <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna come back into the London yeah. years and everything. I can't help it, though, Darren, because I, I just saw a performance last night I, I hadn't seen it for 30 something years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we actually, we're wishing we'd actually be recording our conversation backstage because there was talking parties with Carl Lagerfeld, there was talking uh, all, sorts, all sorts of things. It was very entertaining and interesting, but probably not for public consumption. Um, now, when you were putting this exhibition together, though, you were seeing items that you hadn't seen for a long time. What was that process like having to go through? Two lifetimes of work, effectively, from all been, sorts of different places. That's been extraordinary because the powerhouse have had, from 1980 onwards, an incredible collection of our work, the first pieces that they bought, and then over the years, late 80s, early 90s, they had my pretty comprehensive collection, Jenny's amazing collection, but full of artworks and paintings and textiles, as well as the clothes. So I guess for us both, we've forgotten what was in all the drawers that are in in the archive collection of the Powerhouse Museum. So when the drawers would be opened and we'd be looking at, I'd be looking at drawings of Jenny's that were done all those years ago. It was awesome because it's like, that's so beautiful. They're amazing to see. I mean, I was so thrilled to be able to witness some of the early works that I'd seen being drawn at the time, but now they're preserved. You encouraged me. Well, you encouraged me. No, but she did. She encouraged me to do. I'm, I'm such a sort of very insecure person, and Linda was like, she just her guiding light. She, she was just so. 
She encouraged so many people, and I know I did too, but she encouraged me. And, and I have to say that to you, darling, tonight, and I will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things. <laughs> okay. Well, look, speaking of that, I mean, I was going to get that a bit later, but we're here. You, you've kind of been, in a sense, muses for each other. I mean, you see on the photos and in the exhibition um, tonight, if you haven't already seen it, I mean, there's everyone in each other's clothing. You're, you, you were just such a, a team. And you, was it a real sort of muse and friendship relationship? Well, the muse for me, I studied photography with Paul Cox in Melbourne in 1968. And I still did take photographs. And then when I met Jenny, she became my muse for my photographs. It was like my art form in the landscape. That was our meditation. Jenny would be dressed as a waratah or a swimming gum dress, of course. And we'd go walking in the bush together, you know, her place in the Blue Mountains and in the backyard, acres and acres of beautiful national forest. And we'd spend the days there. And that was our very special time and they were very special photographs and we're lucky that the powerhouses, you know, there's a few big ones in there, but you know, she But they haven't seen all of them. No, (laughs) they haven't. (laughs) That's another thing. (laughs) Don't know everything. (laughs) We did some very erotic photos. We did amazing erotic photos after the fires where Linda painted me up in charcoal direct from the earth just all over my face and body. body. They are the most beautiful erotic series of a woman taking a woman's photographs. Probably some of the best I could ever say in the world. <laughs> well, it's a different gaze, isn't it? it no, but it, because of the subject, it was about after the fire. And I was like this bush woman with these incredible pieces of fabric of silk, which were all Linda slashing with screens of, of, of gum leaves and black and red. And it, they were so emotive because, you know, I don't, I wear black and red all the time because, you know, I, and, and red being this, being the Waratah. And she just captured this extraordinary after the fire. Then they come up. And I was like the coming out of the fire woman. And they are. They're, they're an extraordinary collection of photographs. So I just want to share that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, now we all really want to see them. <laughs> Am I right? So we can arrange those sorts of events in here. And the girls. <laughs> I tell you, this, this talk has already taken directions I have not had. I'm very happy about it. I'm, I'm here for the ride. <laughs> so, Jenny, was, um, was Linda as much of a muse for, for your work? No, I was her muse. Right, so that, that was the dynamic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was her muse. And I tell you, I got very upset when she started photographing other women. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> because we held something that was so amazing and special for those 10 years. And when I do, I say it was a creative love affair. That, that's what it was. 
it, there was no sex involved with this. There was, you know, really there wasn't. It was just this amazing pulsing thing where we just drew on each other's creative energy and each one would come up with an idea and then it would go to another idea and then another one until we were just creating these most extraordinary fashion shows that were, that were, they were, they were fashion shows but they weren't, they were events. They, they were just, you know, we get immersed in, in uh, what shall we think of as a subject for one of our shows? Well, um, maybe the rainforest. Yeah, but, but when we went to the desert and Crete and, and yeah, India, that was a, that was a... Every year there'd be things that were coming into our mind from being out in the landscape and, well, maybe the gum trees and the bush and those early waratahs and flowers and things were the ones that were first and then we'd know that we'd do a show at the end of the year so we'd be working together with our separate ways of the drawings and knittings and paintings or what, however we could create whatever we wanted to make, we would explore every different way that we could. So, you know, we knew we had to have 100 garments for the end of the year. We had a beautiful program and an amazing catalogue. We'd name every single dress, so every single... And they had, and they had songs to match. They had, to have their own song to match in the show. And the right... Our, our model gorgeous friends would sometimes, they'd be able to choose the dresses that they loved to wear because everyone had to have the feeling of what they were wearing. It wasn't just, you're not just wearing a dress or a knit. You are getting into the mode and the feeling of it. And I think all this is represented in this gorgeous exhibition that's here. Because Australia would not have seen catwalk parades like this at that point, right? Early 70s. The first one was in the Hingara restaurant in Chinatown. I love this story so much. Why did you choose that venue? Because Dad ate there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because my father was sort of like a silent king around Chinatown because he was the big gambler and he was the SP bookmaker and so all the, the Chinese cooks and everyone would do their bets with Dad. So, And also he was just a brilliant cook and... Um, Natural because he was a drover's cook when he was 13 years old up in up in Wilmington, and uh, when he came down to Sydney, his skills were even they even got better when he was a market man because he used to cook every Thursday for um, you know 20 odd of the market men, and um, they just thought that was the greatest thing. But anyway, Dad was a that Chinatown was his. I mean, he spent more town, time in Chinatown because. He actually would get up at four o'clock in the morning and then he'd work till two or so in the afternoon, make this big feast, and then he'd sleep in the car for about three hours and then he'd go to the gambling table and gamble all night till he'd start working again. <laughs> so he knew everyone in Chinatown. And so that's why we chose the Higara, because that was his favourite place to work. And we had a ritual that in the early days my studio was in Bondi Road, opposite the Paris Cake Shop. And it would be that Jenny would come, we'd see each other all through the week, of course, but she'd come on a Friday morning, pick up the props, we'd go to Chinatown and have yum cha, a tradition, every Friday. And then we'd go into the shops and then she'd go up to the mountains. But anyway, we chose the Hingara because it also had, you know, pale lemon, pale blue, pale pink laminated walls. Yeah. So 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 the all the tables were yamcha, 
then food cleared away, and then that became the catwalk, the tables. <laughs> was, yeah, and, and upstairs was this, those rickety stairs, remember? Oh, my God, I kept thinking, oh, Mum, don't fall down the stairs. Mum would go in. Mum went in in the morning to clean the upstairs. Because it was warm. Yeah, because it was full of food and everything. So, And that's where all the models changed. I walked down the stairs to go <laughs> onto the catwalk. That, that was our very first parade in Sydney in 19... 1974, yes. 1974, 10th of December 1974, yes. I was pregnant with Grace, and we yeah. were decked out in Chinese opera costumes. And we did, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and we started with I Shot the Sheriff with Linda's um, Opera House dress, which is in the exhibition, which is in the blue room. So, what was it that press brought you together in terms of your passions around fashion? I hate that phrase, by the way, but anyway. A passion for fashion. Yeah. Um, I thought I was the first one who said that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> now everyone says it. I know, right? I know, I feel... Anyway, what, what was it? Because there was a love of vintage fashion that really kind of set you two off, as I understand, knowing that you were kindred spirits. Well, I, w I worked for Vern Lambert in the Chelsea Antique Market, and uh, that was the beginning of retro fashion. I mean, that was the beginning of... Vern used to collect Art Nouveau vases from a, a vet in London whose, whose hobby was, you know, collecting Art Nouveau uh, vases and objects. So she had a team of rag and bone men that went all over the stately homes of England. So Vern said to Francis, get them to bring their clothes down from the objects. And that is how we did start. Because of course there was Port Belvoir, but it was the rag and bone men going around the stately homes that gave us Poirot, Scaparelli, Viennet. Every label dress that you can imagine came down from those attics, mostly in perfect condition, and that's what we used to sell in the shop along with little 40s and 30s um, floral, you know, very popular print, you know, retro clothes. But really, the, the cream of what was in the Chelsea Antique Market was labelled dresses because of this brilliant idea of Burns to, to get the stately homes bringing down their, the women bringing down their clothes. And that's how, that's how we... We got hold of those clothes and, you know, and, and there is the famous story of Mick Jagger. I mean, you, you know, why am I paying 10 quid for this bit of old cobber? Mick, it's got a Scaparelli label in it. You know, and I mean, I, I, I only carried on about performance because, you know, there was young Mick Jagger last night in the line, so divine, in his 20s, in, you know, wearing vintage clothes from us in the market. You know, and when and when they go through that clothes rack, you remember, you know, all those clothes that, that were in the on those racks were from us in the market. My Heidi's from Morocco were on the walls. You know, and that that the atmosphere that's in that film was like it gave me a feeling of the market, and that's the reason I probably am so sort of obsessed with the seeing that film last night because. It, it, it gave a real feeling of 60s 
acid, 60s, out of it, 60s. But it can't be repeated, and we don't want to repeat it. <laughs> but I'm just so grateful that I did this through it, because it was a time. You know, and Nita's got those crushed velvet pants on, the, 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 the cream Victorian lace top with the, 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 the showing through. I mean, just amazing. And, Oh, I'm going on about that. So I can't stop because Martin Sharps he got it because he did all the artwork for it, you know, and and you know the incredible um, painting of, of Mick, you know, and 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 his painting of Mick and Mick looking at the painting and all of that going on, and then he, he got his he got his mum to send him over his. Um, I'm sorry to go on, but I have to. Uh, his drawings of when he was at school at Cranbrook. They were of gangsters, and Martin got his mother to send them over for the film. And when James Fox is in his bathroom, those paintings are above the bath. And it's just those times to be relived. Anyway, that's London. Go on. What was the question? <laughs> well, that, was, that was your introduction to vintage, which was uh, amazing. <laughs> These are out the window, frankly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was you had a different sort of um, entry to the vintage thing? My mum and dad were born in dancers. <laughs> it's such a great story. Dad was dancing from when he was 16 and became a dancing instructor, and the, the war happened. He was an ambulance driver in New Guinea, lived in Cairns, and then came back down to Beaumaris Parkdale sort of beach area and was, get, was born in dancing again, and it heard that my mother was quite tiny, very good at dancing. She won lots of medals and things like that as well, and he asked mum to go out with him to join another group to do the tango on a special occasion, and they just kept on dancing, and mum had someone specially make her ball gowns. She used to make her own clothes, and that's how she taught me how to sew. So I had her ball gowns, which I guess you could say my first introduction to vintage probably, because as I grew up, they were from the 50s, early, late 40s, early 50s, so I had her frocks as well as my dressing up with costumes for ballet and gymnastics and things like that. And also early, when I started, when I went to Emily McPherson College of Domestic Economy in such a beautiful classic name, it did become our MIT. And you get in trouble? No, I didn't. No, it was stuck to the rules. Yes. Not very often, but <laughs> yes. So the vintage of them going into the city every day and now I'm trained from Glen Morris Cheltenham into the city meant that I could explore the second hand shops, the opportunity shops and the antique shops that ring in the city of Melbourne and that really led to my discovery of vintage because, you know, Melbourne had incredible vintage costume and clothes and I'd buy some of those when I learned to sew and remodel them to make my own clothes and so apart from reading Italian Vogue when I was 15 and things like that. So yeah, that was sort of my early introduction to vintage. And then you were making tailored pieces and stuff out of old flower bags and no, vintage no, fabrics and things. That's much later. Much yeah. later that that happened later. And, Oh wow, chronology's got all that. They had Jobs Warehouse as well in yes. Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the the mum and the dancing and knowing about what silk tattoo was when I was like ten years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
couldn't help it. Now, you both left on great international adventures from Australia. First uh, journey, as you said, you went to London. Linda, you sort of took a different route to Europe. I why? Went the opposite way. Yeah, why? You did the opposite of the hidden trail, as I can understand. I met Peter Tully, and with Fran Moore, my partner then, we went to live in New Guinea. Fran's sister was living in the day, her family, so they were going to go to Brisbane for the, the you know annual sort of holiday. So we were able to go and live in their place. So New Guinea, we wanted to go there. So, you know, we were there in the day and lay for nearly a year and it was like, we're living here now. We're meant to be travelling. We better get on the boat. We're on the boat. But we flew to the Philippines, then flew to Singapore, got on a cargo ship, then went to Sumatra and then travelled across through Indonesia to live in Bali for a while. So this is like 1970-71. Then went back up to Singapore, up to Malaysia, then flew across to Istanbul, Amsterdam, and then we lived in Paris for six months. And a bit of London, but yeah, Paris for six months. What was it that you took from the sort of Asian leg of that trip in terms of your fashion inspiration? Everything. Everything about the way women dressed and the way what how the women wore their clothes, how they wrapped, twisted and tied and wove and beaded and wrapped and the practicality of some of the things that they were wearing so they could move, they looked so beautiful but they could hold their baskets on their head. All these sorts of things really had a huge effect on me. And I loved, I loved learning that. I think the National Geographic's books growing up inspired me as well about culture and tribal, different things like that. So, you know, and then going east and then across and living in Paris for those six months was amazing. What did Paris bring to your life? The culture, the place, walking everywhere, the, the theatre, the arts, making costumes for some Spanish actors for some sort of performance. I was suddenly there's always a sewing machine working here wherever I was and I'd be making clothes for the different friends. And my mother kept all my aerograms. There's a stack, enormous, that does tell all the tales of I just made somebody, you know, this little a tailored coat or a, a moo or something like that or a costume that was the Spanish theatre people. And what also about going to do Brad <laughs> 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 and I met an amazing a journalist who then invited us to go. We had front row seats at a Dior collection on the gold seats in the house of Dior. I can't remember any of the clothes, but I can absolutely <laughs> remember the feeling of the people and just, you know, sitting on those chairs and being in this extraordinary place and being really treated really wonderfully. And then I had to learn my few sentences in French to say, I went to knock on the door of Chanel. I walked around there many times before I got brave enough to be able to go and knock on the door and say, I'm from Australia, do you have a job for me? <laughs> <laughs> that was the only French I could speak of. But they didn't have a job for me, but they were so kind and took me and showed me it was really, really extraordinary. And it stayed with me when I had young students come to knock on my door that or want to come to be a part of work experience and things. I knew how they felt and what it was like to be able to work up the courage to say, can I come and, you know, be your case? And I did then work for Mia and Vicky, who 
they spoke English, they were American, so I knew that, you know, I could work out what to do and I did a bit of sewing. <laughs> I know, and she was doing that, you know, going to Dior and you know, Vern was so ahead of his time with his with his love of vintage. We, we, he actually got all these Dior, you know, Duchess satin ball gowns, and we used to have to sell them on sale for five pounds because because no one wanted them. This was 1970-71, and these were 50s new look, you know. Go, just going into the new book. Exquisite ball gowns and they took so much so much space up in this tiny little room where we used to operate from. But we used to we almost had to give them away because everyone wanted the little fortuny sort of bias cut florally chiffon see throughs and forties dresses. But so, you know, those fifties ball gowns were not in vogue. And then when you, when when I saw that Dior show I here, I just couldn't believe it because it was just full of the same clothes that we were looking to sell. It's just a question of, you know, vintage being ahead of yourself is uh, you know well, we all know what that means. <laughs> so nineteen seventy two, Gough Whitman's now in power, Australia is suddenly a different place to where you had both left. Why did you want to come back? And did you feel it was going to be a whole new movement here as an excitement around Australia in a like what did you bring from your international experiences, I suppose, that you wanted to, to do in Australia? Let's start with you. Okay, but um, we we came back because Michael was doing a show um, for George Mora. We had no intention of staying in Australia. And the minute we got, we set, we set down um, in this country, the blue skies, the, the, just the whole experience of this sort of sunny country just so, sort of hit us. But, but then Whitlam had just got in as well. So, you know, suddenly we found ourselves at the Barnythan Gallery with, you know, Brett Whiteley's show and, you know, Michael stepped on Margaret Whitton's fort and, you know, suddenly we were thrown into this energy of this country which we saw had changed. You know, in seven years it really had changed and there was a feeling in the air just like the feeling that I had when I first went to London in the, in 1965. But it just the same feeling was here in Australia at the end of 1972 and... Michael and I just knew we had to stay here, and that, and we did. And uh, then, living in Merca's little place six months later, the beautiful Flamingo Park was was started. It was only it took six months for that shop to open, from the time of the thought of what it could be to um, to when it actually opened. And then and you yeah. were. Melbourne, and then you moved to was. to Sydney, <laughs> and after you met this one, and so what did that landscape and this city do for your eye? What did it bring to your? Well, work? I grew up at the beach. We both grew up beachside, and to be drawn to Bondi and meeting Jenny and 
the whole shop and the shop opening and coming up and just being involved in that. Look at the same. We say the blue sky, the poinsettias, the flowers of the city. It just was inspiring. It's also a funny thing to say, but like when when we actually came back and decided to live in Bondi, all our friends said, "Why are you going to live in that dump?" <laughs> that, I mean, oh, seriously, I don't have times changed, and I all have times changed from the Bondi that I was born in, nineteen forty-seven. But that it, then Linda and Fran came lived came up in November of nineteen seventy-three. And then everything started. The opera house opened. We saw it. <laughs> I know. But our first parade, our second parade, was at the Bondi Pavilion. And you know, slowly, all these artists started moving there. And like Bondi didn't. I know it's this incredible place now, but really, it's yeah. But but it always was a working class suburb. And, you know, that's why there's all those little flats. You know, Mum used to walk the sand dunes to Bondi before there were any of those little flats in, 19, in the 20s, you know. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But where were you going with this? <laughs> <laughs> Bondi, Bondi Tamarama Bronte became the outdoor studio. The mountains was the landscape studio, but we did many amazing photographic adventures just all around that walk. But there was never very many people. Really. We're talking about Kenneth Street. Kenneth Street. In, you know, yeah. Between Bondi, Bronte, Yeah, where Ramos. the where the where the um the sculpture by the sea is. That's where we lived. Right on the ocean. Yeah. So it was pretty amazing. And it was I think it was twenty seven twenty seven dollars a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Look, I, I think what, in your amazing story, the joint story, as the theme particularly, the most noble thing and what you're, I guess, you're most famous for is the fact that you gave Australian fashion its own identity. Can you describe a little bit, Sam Linda, to begin, what the fashion scene was like in Australia before you guys mm. took over? My first job was in a bridal salon. This is before I went away, but I worked in a bridal salon that was on the top floor of Sports Girl. And Sports Girl in Collins Street in Melbourne was pretty groovy. So I guess, but everyone, everyone was copying overseas. Whatever anything was happening, it was always about what was over there. And I mean, the beautiful places that had beautiful clothes would have maybe, I'm not sure the way that they worked it, but you could sort of, copy something and then have it made to sell in your shop. It was all, everything was from overseas. So we were just beginning to want to do our own things. What Still we really love to wear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not us, but it's still, they still go overseas. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was, quite, it was quite generic and European. Well, I, didn't, I always had to make my own clothes anyway. So whatever we were doing, we wanted to wear the things that we wanted to make, what we were inspired by. It just happened that way. So we weren't thinking even to begin to think about what was overseas. That was for other people. If they wanted to do that, fine. We didn't have to. We, we became really free to be really creative, to have no borders, no boundaries. So 
you know, we weren't wanting to copy anybody. We didn't even think like that at all whatsoever. Other people, when I made patterns, would say that, you know, they'd show you the photograph and they'd want you to make something exactly like what somebody else had done. We didn't have any idea of even contemplating something like that. Because you're creative souls. <laughs> yeah, but it, it was it was actually, you know, when we met, the, the magic that happened... Look, the thing is that I was obsessed with the 50s when I came back to Sydney and uh, Linda was making all these beautiful 50s clothes out of vintage fabrics. It was going to work, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was written in the stars, frankly. <laughs> but so, you know, so we both had that aesthetic when, as we met, you know, and I think that... Um, we, that's, that's, that was the start of it, was 50s and how excited we got by that. But the, the thing is that once we got together, magic started to happen. We, and we, we just always wanted to be, um, yeah, around, around the beach, but we, then we'd go into the bush. And when we started going into the bush, I... Remember I found that piece of fabric uh, at Tempe Tip of Bibimbap? Yeah, yes. the, the shorts are actually in the shop. Yes. And, you know, they're the, one of the first little shorts that Linda ever made, uh, which I found this beautiful fabric. But that was sort of like a trigger. You know, we just started getting enveloped in the world of Bibimbap and gum nuts and... And it was on that sort of level at first, but then it just it went deeper and deeper. The, the more we discovered uh, walking in the bush with Linda, for me, was, you know, I, I'd grown up at Bondi, yes, and then I went straight to London. My mother used to um, have, you know, the can of Morton spray and she would um, spray anything that moved. <laughs> and, you know, we, you know, we had green lawn and that was it. And, you know, I used to go up, we used to go up to the mountains together and it was walking through the bush with Linda that I really discovered nature in a way that um, I can't... I, I, it was like a born-again experience, actually. To, to walk with her in nature. Um, and I say this really deeply because um, I, I, I've lived in the Blue Mountains for the last 43 years and I just love it. But um, going with Linda in, into the bush, the way she would always see faces in the trees and just the, the peace that I felt when I used to go with her was... Um, was, yeah, it, it was a, an experience of really discovering and feeling the earth. And, uh, and that's, you know, obviously stayed with both of us the way we've journeyed into all the different aspects of this country um, as our inspiration. But um, for me, I'm, I'm up in the Blue Mountains because I, I just, I so deeply feel connected. And uh, that was with you, sweetheart. Mm. Well, we had an amazing time together. And then the practicality of was how 
Can we turn our ideas? Can we find people who can paint? Do we have a gorgeous friend, Charlotte, who hand-painted and they're actually in the exhibition, which is really wonderful, really emotional as well. You know, we were trying to find out how can we translate. We have all these ideas. How can we make them happen? Because making textiles and things in Australia wasn't, you know, you had to put thousands of meters and, you know, it was all big and we were bespoke and small. So to try to work out how can we make these things happen was part of our you know, frenzy about trying to make our creations happen, the knitting and the printing and the hand painting, you know, that was that became our major force of trying to make trying to make them happen. On the knitting front, now this is I when we spoke a few weeks ago when the before the exhibition opened, I sort of said to Jenny, but who who used to make the jumpers? Like how are they like they're handmade, right? And Jenny's like, yes, there's tell us about the network. Well, I guess my greatest talent is finding talented people to execute my ideas. And um, I just had this idea that um, winter was coming and I, and I, what, what are we going to do for winter? And so I thought, well, goes back to London and uh, they're all in, in the, the exhibition. Um, the first thing I ever bought uh, from Vern at the Chelsea Antique Market wasn't a beaded Chanel dress. It was a Richard Attenborough fan club jumper. <laughs> um, it, it, because it was the most unusual thing I'd ever seen. It, it's not that I even probably even knew much what Richard Attenborough did, um, but, it, but his, uh, his signature was across the jumper knitted in. And all his films were knitted in on the back, and I just—it was—it cost me fifty p, fifty pence, and um, I thought it was the most divine thing I'd ever found. And and I'm just thinking of the of the before room, you know, because you're going to go into the before room first. And I think of that doggy curtain that I got, and I don't know where this is going with the knits, but it doesn't matter because everything's. <laughs> Because it's about the hand and the hand work. So whether it be a knit or whether it be all the embroidery, that's what I fell in love with. And that's what led me to love, you know, Guatemalan, African, um, just incredible beaded Indian, you know, just things done by hand. And... When I think of the um, the Madge Jewel dress that's in the before room, she was a famous clairvoyant, and she used to go into trances, and she used to do her embroideries. I got one of her dresses. That is how I decided that what am I going to do for winter? The shop is here. We've had all this beautiful summer of fifties prints. I will do hand knitting like my jumpers that I love from London. I will do pure villa wool 12 ply and I will put Australian motives on those jumpers. It wasn't any more than that. It wasn't a plan. It was just kangaroos, kookaburras, koalas, 
That's how it started. And the very one of the very first zip-up parties is on show. That is probably one of the first ones that was ever made. And that's in the that's in the Flamingo Park room. And it was as unselfconscious as that. Out of necessity. <laughs> but you had the whole the whole knitting network was sort of Well, all over I town, went on right? television and I said, I need knitters. That's what I said on the show. Is there any knitters out there? Tell me. You know, knowing I was on telly. And the very next day in came Janice, tall, beautiful, gangly English girl with a suitcase full of fabulous knitting. And I thought, that's it, we're on the go. And it was, yeah, but that's how simple it was and how amazing it was. And that's how many people came into our lives. So Deborah Lays with beautiful hand painting and, you know, Charlotte in the beginning, we just attracted people to come and be creative over, over the years who become part of our shows. Peter and all his jewellery, all his plastic jewellery. The it store itself became like a creative hub for the city, really, didn't it? Absolutely. Well, it was also that we chose, or that I chose, to, um, to the shop to be in the Strand Arcade. I mean, the Strand Arcade then was full of milliners and cobblers and shirt makers and machine, they had a machine knitting shop and, you know, it, it was, it was a, it was a backwater, you know, and, and Lloyd Lomas was the one who, who he had his hair presence on down the George Street end and he said, Jen, don't look in Oxford Street, come into the Strand and have a look. And that's, that's how I found the shop. It was 40, $40 a week. And um, it, it was in the middle of the aisle, suite 67. And um, then when I met Linda and her clothes went into the blue room and we had our first parade, I created the red room just for her evening room. And why was that? Why, didn't it, why did you need to have the second room visually? Because I had to have a room for Miss Jackson's beautiful dresses. So I created a now red and scaparelli pink red room, which was billowing pink cat taffeta curtains and her exquisite clothes. And when I stand in that red room, it just feels like it did. And that is so exciting to know that all the old people that used to come to the shop, but then my little 15-year-old is so obsessed with those two rooms. It's just brings, it's just so wonderful to think we're playing to, you know, oldies and older than us. Then we have, you know, the beauty of romance was born and then we go down to our 15-year-olds and then... Linda and I witnessed two three-year-olds throwing through themselves into the blue room the other day. And then the red room. And then threw themselves into the red room and then jumped all over the, jumped all <laughs> over the colour and shapes room. And, oh, God. <laughs> 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 oh, my God. Because they think, 
They were only tiny. They thought the show was a playground. How wonderful. That is what's so exciting. They did behave themselves. (laughs) Well, they did when I came up to them. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the show is. It's like a playground of beauty and fun and colour and joy. And that's, that's what we can leave with people walking out with that, that sense of happiness, then that's a good thing. In this world, right now, it's a really good thing. Now, after a period of time working together, you decided that it was time to you know, focus on individual projects and things. What, what, when did you know it was the right time? How did, how did, how did you know? How did we know what was that it was the right time to sort of sort of work on individual projects? It just sort of happened. It was the Opal show, and um, I could see that Linda needed to uh, do her own art more, and I needed to do my own art more, and it was sort of just a natural progression. Yes. Yeah. I had to have a bigger studio because I wanted to, you know, get into my own screen printing and things like that. So it really just evolved because we've always, we never lost our friendship or the admiration that we had for each other, but it just sort of meandered off. I just well, we had to have a studio and we went our separate ways. Yeah. And it, and it felt right at the time. And, uh, you know, I was I was developing, you know, the personality of my, of, of you know, my persona. And um, you know, you were you were starting to work more with indigenous. I went to Alice Springs and Lightning Ridge. Yeah. So what what drew you to those places? Why did you want to go? Well, I guess the travel, loving the travel, but wanting to know more about our country and just wanting to go to Alice Springs because I had dreams about it. I just wanted to to be able to experience it, and then going there and meeting Robin Davidson and some other amazing women. To be able to be taken to some, you know, to Utopia, one of my first, the Indigenous communities that I went to, then then being invited to go back to really meet the women later on and to use their textiles, their batik, and, you know, we've borrowed from the NGV, the Utopia outfit that dates back to that time. So, you know, we have that piece here. And I wanted to know more about country and more about just being out there. So that was really special. And that... You know, I kept wanting to travel out there a lot and eventually went out there to live, you know, much later on. And what, um, what sort of things did you work on sort of technique-wise and with your textiles in that time? So some fantastic, incredible textiles from the bush couture and all that. Well, I saw a gum leaf and it said, <laughs> You know, so experimenting like that, making every mistake that you can possibly make, wrinkling the fabric, doing everything, all the things that you are not meant to do was the way that we discovered this whole other way of screen printing. And then it was amazing to get one beautiful piece like an artwork and then to, to work out how can we keep printing a few more that you know so we can get a few more metres. You know, things like that were pretty tricky and I had some amazing people come to work with me, you know, in the screen printing, you know, we had a set whole setup in the studio to do that. So then I didn't want to cut them up. I wanted them, you know, they were like painting, so they became, I couldn't cut them up. That's how it became into beautiful big jackets and the ponchos and 
using them more like textiles or artworks or paintings. So, you know, I learned a lot about how to make it work like that. And then eventually we were able to be printing more meters and, you know, be able to do furnishing fabrics and things like that. But when it became the bigger quantities, then I would work with another printer who would be able to repeat some of it. But the basic, the ones that are mostly in the exhibition are all the original, using the gum leaves and metallic paints and string and different things like that. I love you saying about not wanting to cut up the, the fabrics. Um, and there was a time when you were actually, so that you could work with the batiks that the women had made themselves. You were actually giving them fabric, I understand. Well, when I went out to Utopia, they were doing, they were just doing simple things like t-shirts that they could do some batik on. So I would get a collection of their beautiful silks and I'd make really, really simple things because I didn't want to cut up their beautiful artwork. And so then I would send the ladies the odd sort of a gathered skirt or a simple shape that they could then do the batik on. And, you know, they'd send me messages back saying they had a bit of a laugh about what, what, were they, what was this or what kind of a skirt was this. So... Because you know, they all wore really simple clothes and lots of layers, so you know we were sort of on the same wavelength in a way. And you were teaching a lot of the women things, but what did you learn as well? Well, I learned about sitting down, being with the women, sharing stories, learning about culture, and you know from the different communities over the years that I went to, I I learned a little bit of language. You know, I always my first words would usually be, "Can I make you a cup of tea?" something like that because you know just and just to be there and you know doing art projects helping if they wanted to do screen printing or painting quite simple things in the beginning it would usually be through the women's center before there was an art center in the community or like at santa Teresa or out at Inverness. the women's centers were the hub for the women because they go there to do their washing and then they start wanting to do more artworks and they see another community being really successful so they say, you know, can we have somebody come to teach us a bit of that sort of painting or screen printing and, you know, different things like that. So, you know, I could go out a short time in the early days to work with the women and, you know, once people know that you love being out there, that you can go camping, well, you know, you can get invited back a bit more. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, now, you're both incredibly spiritual women and... There are two very, very special rooms in this exhibition, two very special pieces. Um, maybe, Linda, actually, I'll start with you. Can you tell us, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the Zen Waratah? Well, my interest in Buddhism and Zen started really early, I think, in, early in my life. I think I loved pointing in and just, you know, went to the Theosophical Bookshop in Melbourne really early and discovering, trying to find books and learn a bit more about things like that. And then the travel in the East, I went to so many Buddhist temples in Bodhidharma and Indonesia and, you know, that just became absorbed in my life and I love reading and I would, you know, read and collect and I love the art and the philosophy. So I think it just has stayed with me from that time and loving the robes and because I can sew and... That piece has actually taken about 10 years to do. So for me in the bush, dyeing the cloth in the black bottle bark that's, you know, I've got sort of some land out near Mudgee, so chopping up the bottle bark, burying the cloth for months at a time, re-dyeing it, and then also going through the process of the indigo dyeing and then 
stitching the pieces together by hand like a Buddhist monk's robe, the meditation in the thought process of that, and then eventually it became a kimono, and then eventually it had Waratahs printed and painted on it with the gold, and then a few years later, you know, more pieces became added, and then it's it's actually been in a few exhibitions up in Cairns and in Bendigo. So it's been around, and it's amazing, amazing. The rooms for both our two works are completely extraordinary. They're quite separate from everything else, and this piece looks like it's floating. I mean, the way that Tony was wanting to, you know, I thought I was going to have a Japanese sort of a room, but it evolved into this exquisite piece, and it's it's just too awesome. And they're both, they both really are intended to be and, and, and are, like, rooms for contemplation. They're really incredible. Yes. Um, so, you know, there is so much visually in the exhibition, and then you can just come into these very quiet spaces and have a moment. And um, Jenny, the white Waratah warrior is just such an extraordinary story. Please tell us all about it. Well, I created um, Transformer, the white Waratah warrior walking the sacred path. I created that as a memory and a tribute to my partner who committed suicide in 2001. Uh, I created that in 2006 because the Powerhouse Museum had a wonderful uh, team called uh, the Recycle Project Team. They came to the Powerhouse to do their thing. And their thing was, a long time before um, recycling, I guess, uh, their thing was to, you would go to them with a piece of worn clothing and they would read restructure it and recreate it into something new for you. So Masahiro came up to the mountains and um, I presented him with a, with a box of Danton's newly worn t-shirts. And um, then we started on the process of an extraordinary collaboration because um, one of them was a Unidos t-shirt that Dan had actually worn to Kevin Coles and um, and Unidos vest, knitted vest, but if you look at the gown, you will see it. Um, that's the sort of warrior vest, is, is the Unidos vest that Dan had from the age of 15 to the war until he nearly fell off in the place. And um, Masahiro was so touched by um, by what he saw in front of him, but also the Unios, um, one of the Unios t-shirts, he, he had, his mother had come to Australia in 1986 and she brought him back Unios sheets. And Masahiro, as an 18-year-old boy, had slept in their sheets. So when he saw the print, the Unios print on the Danton t-shirt, he sort of wept because it really meant a lot to him, I didn't know. But from then on, we had this heart collaboration and I made many drawings talking about how I love the Waratah and and um, and I showed him notes that Dan Hong used to, to send me um, to my 
beautiful red white tie and your crunchy white white tie. Because <laughs> I used to call him the white white tie because he was so rare and so amazing. And um, that suffered from illness, a serious illness of depression. So Masahiro and Chloe Simcox, who worked with me on the Olympic garments, which are a very beautiful feature of the show, she came with Masahiro to realise this exquisite white volatile gown. Masahiro had brought out a Japanese wedding um, kimono. He didn't know why he brought it to Australia. It was an old white kimono and he offered it to me to be part of the gown. So the petals on the gown are from his Japanese wedding kimono and on the petals of that gown are written the purification mantra, which is the Vajrasattva mantra. That is my practice. That is what I do every day. And it's a hundred syllable mantra. Om Vajrasattva Samaya Manapalaya Vajrasattva Tenopati Dogudumabawa Sukukaya Mabawa Sukukaya Mabawa Anorakta Mabawa Sava Sidi Mabaracha Sava Tama Susa Mabi Sita Shuham Guruhum Ha 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 O Babawa Sava Tata 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 Namanusika Tata Nasana Nasato I do that mantra every day. And in the petals of that dress is written that mantra. It is the purification mantra. It is, it helps me. It helped me get through the period of his departure. And that is why I have written that mantra into the gown and it is the most meaningful piece for me in the show because it's, it's the white volatile and it's about purity. So, I found very quiet <laughs> What do you hope other people get from it? That feeling. That feeling. Gaff arrived in Australia and the t-shirt that's on the gown is also there but you can't see it. He arrived in Australia with a, with a t-shirt and he had transformative money. And um, that's what he's done for me. He's, he's transformed my life in ways that I never knew possible. I'm not an unhappy girl. I've, I've lived through the greatest suffering and I've come out to have this show with a friend that I've had for nearly 45 years and it doesn't get much better than that. We really live simply so others may simply live. We walk our talk. We live humbly. I love to dress up when I come to Sydney. I love to put on my red lips. But in the mountains, I've just got my flannel shirts, which I wear a flannel shirt one a week. And I'm just so low-key 
I have my Dharma friends and it's a pretty beautiful life because I live at one and so close to the most, in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And this show is just the greatest joy in my life. And when I say that I want you, that I hope you all will, I'm not, I want you, I want you to all work out happy, I hope you work out happy because that's the greatest gift that we can give to you. We've been really lucky for this exhibition to happen now. It could have happened 10 years ago because maybe that's... 20. Or 20 years ago. <laughs> the fact that it's happened now and for what Jenny's just said and what we've been through together and for the last year and a half to have been thrown together in this incredible way to be delving into each other's lives in an even bigger way than we would have ever known because it's it's 45 to 50 years has been extraordinary and it's an emotional overpowering incredible time that we've been through so the whole team that we've worked with to make this exhibition the way that it is they have created something that is incredibly beautiful so we're feeling the emotion as we begin to walk through all the rooms because it's being captured. So all of us working together, they've captured our spirit for how we feel about each other that you can't often put into words because but they've captured the feeling in the space and the music that's been created as well, which is really beautiful. There's a beauty about it all and it's, you know, it's... Leaves, can leave one speechless and people saying it's awesome, but that's because of whatever it is that's brought us together in the first place has also kept us together as, as, as wonderful friends. Yeah. It's such an incredible story. And as when we spoke but, here, oh no, I just wanted to say that um, it's, it's, and I know she's not going to want me to, but Lisa Havilar is the most amazing person, this new director. I'm sorry, but I have to say because because Lisa understands creatives and she has let us have free reign. We got the most incredible creative director in Tony Asness. We have had the most extraordinary team of, from the powerhouse to execute our dreams. And without... It, it's it's because of collaboration that this show has happened in the, in in this way. And, but but being allowed to be this creative has been just such a gift. And I thank you, Lisa Havilah. Looks me Go in and see the show. Well, I know it does feel like kind of the natural end, but we are a little early, and I don't want to also deprive them of even another moment. But so I just want to finish with you mentioned collaboration there, and it's such a phenomenal legacy that you have. And I'm doing my career, <laughs> but um, working with the Robots for Nice, for example, how important has that been for you? Look, when they when they when they started, they, I think they, they had their first show in Melbourne. Was it in Melbourne? Well, I got a call from, from a friend in Melbourne to say, have you seen these kids? 
They are called romances born. They're like you, but they're not you. They're like them, but they're like you. And this excitement that came down the phone, and I thought, romance was born. What a fabulous name. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of Flamingo Park, Step Into Paradise, and then romance was born. It just had the same flavour. And then... Linda and I had to, to open um, a little pop-up shop for them and um, we we danced on the dance floor for Vogue's 50th birthday and I was, you know, in, absolutely enchanted. Like, we are their mum and dad, we're their mentors. <laughs> they are, you know, just the most creative couple, you know, that I've seen for a very, very long time. Oh, well, for... Ever since us, to be honest, <laughs> in this country, and Linda and I have both done the, mo the two most fantastic collaborations. I was in Paris last year with them, and and Linda was um, at the art gallery in 2015. They're, um, they're just their energy and their creativity is is boundless. Yeah, and they've got the magic of being able to work with artists and work with their artwork in really amazing ways. That's that's collaboration of a really top level and to absolutely acknowledge the artists, but they are the fashion designers and how, you know, being around them and watching the two of them sort of work together and how they work collaboratively themselves, even with every single part of what they do, you know, they need to be congratulated. Yeah. You, um do you find it very satisfying working with them at this whole new generation just discovering your work as well? Discovering our work and discovering about this country and discovering that you actually can look to your own country. There is so much inspiration in this country to the people in this country, to the ancestors of the land. You don't need to be looking for it. You can if you want to, but you know, you can learn from, you know, the university of what is of life is out there. So you can you can look to all of that. But they had their rose. We've got a waratah. They had their chrysanthemum. We've got a waratah or a shirt says a pea. Our country is full of life and inspiration. Because there was a time that Australiana was almost a dirty word, really, in terms of design and fashion. And, and I'm not really. To be, not to be thought of as something of value. Yeah, it was just and it was a bit fun. kitchen fun. And, and I think that changed. changed. I think it changed when Anna Piaggi called it fashion arose from another hemisphere in Italian Vogue in 1977. I think it did change because when that woman put her stamp of approval on us, all the fashion magazines in this country really, really understood that, the, that someone on the highest level, because Anna Piaggi, I don't know whether you know Anna Piaggi, but... She was the greatest female in fashion that the world would have ever seen. In another hundred years, they will be saying, who or what is this woman? What is this woman who is wearing a library of clothing going from the 17th century to 2000 and whenever she died? You know, she was a walking history of, of clothing and style in the most incredible way. She loved Linda and I when we went to Italy, yeah, in 1977. And, um, and 
you know, I, I was witness to Vernon at a meeting in, um, in, at the Chelsea Antique Market in 1968, which he came in with the and Anna and Vernon met, and that was it. They, they, they were, you know, became the two most stylish people that I have ever known and, um, and will ever know. I mean, between Anna and Vernon and Bill Cunningham, number three, they, you know, these giants have died. And now, yes, I will add him. Carlisle's dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the exhibition, of course, also is the, is the Chanel suit for which he used the opal print. And I understand from Glynis, the curator, that he found you because you couldn't print the fabrics in Australia and that you had to have them printed in, in Italy and that's where he saw them. Well, no, but, but when Linda went... Yeah, but when, when, when Linda went into Indigenous world, I was going over to Milan to have my fabrics printed by Fabio Bologna with rainbow fabrics. And... Um, uh, that is when I met Carl at, at the Scala with, with Anna and Vern, and I was decked out in all my collage of clothing and colour, and um, he was entranced. And then Anna did a big story on me for, for her new magazine called Vanity Magazine, which, by the way, is a collector's item if you ever get to see them. They are incredible. And um, it, it was that that's how um, he saw the opal print and used it for his first range with Chanel in 1983, two years after Lyndon and I had done it. <laughs> well, we both had our different versions of the opal print, my opal print. Um, it, um, in 1983, we did our show, our last opal show together in 1981. What you were saying before, quickly, about um, Anna having Italian vogue, it's something everyone here had to really take notice. Was it really that sort of case back then that you had to get that international validation before? Obviously, there was a scene happening here. Still, yeah. But it was that. Was yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think we've now changed? Let's not now around. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But we could have stayed over there and not ever come back. But we <laughs> thank you for coming back. <laughs> but we wanted to come back to Australia. We just had had an amazing time, and I met Jenny's wonderful friends and. But we didn't want to be there. We knew what we were doing. They knew that what we were doing was beautifully done, the best and colourful and everything that and exciting. Like. And exciting. But we came back and knew, well, we'll just keep on being better. Mm-hmm. And we'll keep on doing what we love because that's what we have to do. As you both continue to do. What an absolute pleasure to have you two tonight. Um, I'm going to try not to get emotional. <laughs> Many thanks to the Powerhouse Museum for A, providing this free event to listen to Jenny Key and Linda Jackson talk about their amazing collaboration and B, giving us the permission at So Organised Style Podcast to let you listen into their conversation. This episode of So Organised Style was produced by me, Maria Theoharis, sound by bensound.com. So Organised Style, spelt with an S, not a Z, is available on our website, soorganisedstyle.com, with all the links for this special podcast. You can also find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio and CastBox. 
subscribe to our podcast to listen to earlier podcasts and tell your friends about our podcast. We publish podcasts each fortnight unless we have newsworthy podcasts just for you. Thanks for listening.